friend of mine wrote this <clears throat> years ago. He was listening to a message that a pastor was giving, and uh, the pastor's train of thought got him thinking down a train of thought, and uh, he wrote this. Uh, Tis the season, but how, uh, how you see it, what you see, makes all the difference. So two perspectives on Christmas. What do you get when you take a mailbox full of flyers, Black Friday, political correctness, easy credit, and disaffection with what you already have, a willingness to go into debt, generic greeting cards, an uptick in suicides, and a vague anxiety that you might offend someone's sentimentalities. What do you get? You get a short-lived commercial break that falls far short of a transcendent longing that has taken a wrong turn. Happy holidays. What do you get when you take a young, engaged couple who are dirt poor, introduce an unplanned pregnancy, follow it up with an intended groom having second thoughts, run it through the local rumor mill, toss in a government mandate that takes them away from any support group that they might have had, and a murder plot to kill the baby? fold in a housing nightmare and end up having a birth in a barn with a random group of strangers dropping by. And oh yes, did I mention the angels? What do you get? You get a piece of, of the story that changes everything. It changed the trajectory of Mary and Joseph's life. It set them on an adventure far more wonderful than they could have ever imagined. And it has done the same to everyone else who has ever stepped into this story and made it their own. Merry Christmas. There's a big difference between those two perspectives, isn't there? And that's the marvelous, wonderful story of Christmas. That's why we're here. That's why we have trusted in Christ, because God was uh, demonstrating to the world that, um, that he loved the world and wanted the world to know him and wanted to have relationship with the world and wanted to have relationship with you and me. He's looking down through the corridors of history, and he's looking at what must be done. And what must be done is God must become a man to sacrifice himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin so that you and I could have access to God. So Christmas, in a real sense, is the beginning of the end of death for eternity. It's the setting forth of that. It's the working out of that. And last week, we talked about uh, some not-so-famous people in Jesus' uh, uh, genealogy. And this week, I want to talk about famous people in the story of redemption, just a couple of them. One of my favorite things at Christmas is to sitting around with the family and uh, telling stories of past Christmases. And, um, and then also just to have a, a, a couple of days to just reflect and think and quietness. There's not a lot going on uh, outside of the house that I'm interested in uh, at, at Christmas. At our Christmas Eve service last week, we got a glimpse of the humble beginnings of many of Jesus's uh, early uh, ancestors. Um, we found out that of the 76 names in, in Luke's genealogy, 60 of them are not in Matthew's genealogy, and 36 of them are not mentioned in the entire Bible. In fact, the only way that we know about them is from Luke's genealogy, and the only way that we know that is because Luke went on a search and fact-finding mission to find out all of the data that he could when he was writing his gospel to write down a carefully written chronology of what happened in the life of Christ, and he did that before 70 A.D. The reason that's important is that in 70 A.D., 
the temple was destroyed. And when the temple was destroyed, the archives of the genealogical records were destroyed. If the Messiah hadn't come by 70 AD, there would be no way to trace his lineage properly through the lineage of the line of David because those records were wiped out. But Luke had access to them. He wrote his gospel before 70 AD. He had access to other means that we talked about in those, in those messages. So this week, I want to go in, in a different direction. Last week, we looked at the humble beginnings, the, the fact that 36 of them are, are unknown, and yet they're in the line of the Messiah. You don't have to be known, you don't have to be famous to be really important. Because without that line, without that unbroken line from, from Abraham to David and then down to Jesus and the line from Abraham back to Adam, without that line, there can be no Messiah because God had laid it down that the, the Messiah had to be uh, of the line of, had to be a, a, a son of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so forth and so forth and so forth. And eventually you have 76 names and some are probably left out. There's probably some that are, are, there's gaps in it. Grandfathers and some fathers are probably dropped out at different points. But this week I want to look at some of the famous people. I want to pick up left where we left off last Monday night by showing you a couple of the oddities in the genealogy of, of um, Jesus in Luke. And if you're looking at your, at your uh, it's in Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38, and you'll see that it begins this way. And I want you to look at the first, first verse, verse, verse 23 of the genealogy. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, parenthesis, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, that, that is the only time that any one of these names has anything about them except the son of. In fact, literally in the Greek uh, here, it, the, the word son isn't even there. It's uh, Heli, uh, the next one would be Heli uh, of Mahat. And, uh, uh, and the next one, of Levi, and of Melchi, and of Janai, and so forth. We've inserted in the English translations the son of, just to make it clear that that's what's being said. It's the son of the previous named person. The first thing is at the end of verse 23, you see this, this little parenthesis that says, Joseph, um, uh, in verse 23, um, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So the, it's as if the Spirit of God is taking a highlighter in your Bible and wants you to put a highlight on that. Notice this. Notice this difference because it stands out. Of 76 names, it's the only one that anything else is said um, differently. And that difference is supposed to draw your attention. Next thing I want to draw attention to is if you look at from verse 24... Uh, down to verse uh, 27, um, all of those names are completely unknown outside of right there, except for Zerubbabel. So you have all these unknown people, and then you get to Zerubbabel and the son of Shiltiel. There's a reason for that. This man, Zerubbabel, is pretty famous in the Old Testament. We're going to go through that in in just a moment. And then the last name in the genealogy, the son of Adam, and then the son of God. Uh, ne neither Jesus nor Adam 
have a human father. Both of them are related uh, to God in a completely different way. And that also is something that we should, we should see, we should have our eyes drawn attention to. Now I want to look at Zerubbabel and Joseph and Mary, some, some of the famous people. There's some others, there's David and there's Isaac and there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and there's, there's uh, others in there that are famous. But I'm just going to focus on Mary and Joseph briefly and then I'm going to spend most of my time looking at Zerubbabel or as I told you before, I like to call him Bubba. Um, Zerubbabel, Joseph, and Mary are famous in the genealogy. Joseph is the first one to get the spotlight in verse 23. Jesus being the son as was supposed of Joseph. Now to us, this is the first hint in the genealogy of the virgin birth. It's the first hint because we know the rest of the story. We know the other gospels. We know what the gospel says. But it, to us, it's the first hint of that. But it's also a tip-off ge- in the genealogy to the genealogy being of someone other than Joseph. After all, why say that he, Jesus is the son as was supposed of Joseph and then give a genealogy when Joseph is not the father of Jesus? And so most scholars, many, most scholars, there's been a big debate over the, over the years. People have gone back and forth. But the majority of, of, of conservative scholars uh, believe that this is a genealogy that expresses Mary's um, uh, uh, line. A woman who is surprisingly never mentioned in this genealogy, especially since Luke mentioned so many women in his genealogy. But a woman who is one of the primary characters of the first two chapters, the two chapters that came before this. She's first introduced in, in uh, 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 chapter 1, verse 27, and then the next 60 verses in the narrative, Mary is the principal character uh, in, in uh, saying and doing all of the things uh, and having done to her all the things that, that uh, um, the narrative, narrative talks about. And so she's a primary character. And then the following 60-some verses are mostly about Mary, although her name is not mentioned. She is playing, the, she's a character uh, in the background that is uh, with Jesus, for instance, in the temple and uh, in other places. So all of these things lead us to, to believe that this is the genealogy of, of Mary. But remember this to the original readers. This was a hint of a scandalous rumor uh, related to Jesus. And the original readers would have read this. This was a hint of the scandal that was a part of um, uh, Jesus' life on it, that dogged Jesus for the whole of his ministry. In fact, if you read uh, John chapter 9, verse 29, there's a hint of this in one of the digs that the Pharisees give to Jesus when they're disputing with him at one point. And they said, you know, they say, you know, as for this man, we don't know where he's from. We know who our father is, but we don't know where, who his father is. And so there's, a, there's this little dig that's in there about uh, who was the father of, of, of Jesus. I want to leave them for just for a bit here and talk about Big Z or uh, Zerubbabel. Nobody names their son Zerubbabel today, right? Anybody do that? I, I'm, I'm waiting. Some, someday I'll speak and somebody will say, we have a son. Zerubbabel. But in his own day, he was, he was pretty important. His name means the seed of Babylon or born in Babylon. He was one of the exiles who was um, uh, part of the, the exiled families that, that were exiled to Babylon because the nation was, was um, 
disobedient and God said, you haven't given my land its Sabbaths and for 70, uh, 70 Sabbaths have been missed and so I am going to send you out of the land for uh, 70 years. And they, go to, they are taken to Babylon in a series of, of deportations that occur from, the, from what we know as the Holy Land to Babylon uh, in, the, in the east. They start in 605 and 586, and there's different, different deportations that happen, but a large number of people are taken to, uh, to Babylon, and he's one of their ancestors. He led the first group of Jews, numbering over 42,000 people, uh, who returned from the Babylon, Babylonian captivity under Cyrus the Great. Most scholars date that around 538 B.C. He appears in five different books. Do you know that? Zerubbabel is in five different books in the Old Testament. He's in Haggai that we just went through. He's in Zechariah. He's in First Chronicles. And he's also in Ezra and Nehemiah. He's a major character. And God, God allows him to become that major character because he wants us to know something about him. There's a setup that God is, is doing in his life. He laid the foundation for the second temple soon after getting back, from, uh, uh, back to Jerusalem. And Haggai says that God is going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. Remember that, a signet ring. What is a signet ring? Anybody? It's a seal. A, a king would have a, a signet, a symbol on his ring. They'd put some wax on a document or something that they wanted to make official, and he would press that signet ring, uh, a sealing that letter or that document, that had the king's seal, the king's authority. God says, I am going to make you not a signet ring. I'm going to make you like a signet ring. That was something that kings had. There's a problem with that. We'll get to it. He comes to be governor when Haggai was called as a, as a prophet, but he could, he could not be king because, you see, there's a scandal attached to Zerubbabel's past. Zerubbabel, according to uh, Matthew's genealogy has a, um, a great-great-great-grandfather named Jeconiah. And Jeconiah is, is, was a king at one point, and he has, to, he has the ignominy of being prophesied against in the book of Jeremiah. I know, there's a lot of names here. There's going to be even more. Conaniah... Jeconiah, Conaniah has about four different names in the Old Testament, um, but he's the one who God says that he was so bad that he is ne no son of his will ever sit on the throne of David, none. So when Zerubbabel's name appears in this genealogy and in Matthew's genealogy, it is the Spirit of God bringing out a spotlight saying, pay attention to this. A Jew seeing the, this name and seeing that he's related to Jeconiah, sometimes called Conaniah, would be a person who's... How can that person be in this genealogy if the genealogy is about the Messiah? How is that possible? We know quite a bit about that guy. He's not mentioned here, but he is the wicked son of one of Shetil's uh, ancestors. How wicked? Well, he only reigned for three months. But in that time, he did so much wickedness, and he was only 18 years old at that time. He's 18 years old, and he already has multiple wives. He's one of the ones that gets deported to Babylon. 
And in that three months, he did such evil that God says this in, uh, in Jeremiah. If I can get to it. Jeremiah chapter 22. As I live, declares the Lord, though Conaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were a signet ring. Hmm. Same phrase. Though he were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are, you are afraid, even in the hand, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. 37 years later. He dies. But in the land to which you will long, you will long to return, there, shall not you, there you shall not return. Is this man, Conaniah, despised? God's still speaking. Uh, speaking. A broken pot, a vessel no one cares for. Why are he and his children hurled and cast into the land that they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. That repetition is an emphasis. God is saying, this is, I am emphatic about this. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. You're related to Zerubbabel. You're not going to sit on the throne. No blood descendant of this king will ever sit on David's throne. How can Jesus be the Messiah if he has this guy as an ancestor? He can't be the Messiah if this man's blood is running through his veins. That's a problem. And how that problem is solved is part of the wonder of the Christmas story. Because so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so who was the son of, 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 76 names. But at the top, there is that hint, as was supposed, of Joseph. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, 2, verse 2, and two twenty, he is never when he's, when he's uh, serving, uh, when Zerubbabel comes back, uh, he's never called king. He's always called governor because God keeps his word, and you can trust it. You can trust his word always. He watches over his word to perform it, says Jeremiah chapter 1, verse, 20, verse 12. That's what God does. He's always watching over his word. So what's going on in his life? Why, 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 was he, why did all this happen? It seems when you begin to study his life to be a bit of an overkill in the narrative, frankly, when you start studying about this guy, Jehoiakim, who is related to Zerubbabel. Uh, the narrative spends so much time on one man reigning as king who only reigned as king for three months. You'd think that he doesn't deserve all that, that attention. Why make such a big deal? But remember, he, he lived in a very interesting time. He, he lived during the the deportation. He, lev he lived uh, in 597, if you, if you want to know exactly. He was, it was the same deportation. He was sent to um, um, 
Conaniah I'm talking about, uh, he, uh, that, uh, that took Daniel and Mordecai and Ezekiel to Babylon. So Conaniah, along with Daniel and Ezekiel and Mordecai, uh, they, they all go to Babylon around the same time. It's the same deportation that took Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah to Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar uh, gave them new names. You, you know them probably as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And eventually threw them into a furnace. Like I said, that was an interesting time. 37 years later, Conaniah dies. He dies in uh, Babylon. But there's those three months that God made significant with that prophecy in Jeremiah and said, though you were a signet ring, I would tear you off. No child of yours will ever sit on the throne. God watches over his word to perform it. When God says something, he means it. Remember that because it's part of the solution uh, to the problem of Jeconiah in the genealogy. A church filled with African refugees from Nigeria and Ghana and Leone, uh, Sierra Leone might say, uh, and I've heard them say this, God will make a way where there is no way. That's what God does. God will make a way where there is no, when it looks impossible, God will make a way. We're told in the book of Hebrews that when Isaac had a knife over top of his son, his only son, the son of the promise, the one through whom all of the world was going to be blessed, the one that God said through Isaac, your seed, your, 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 the generations from you will be unnumberable. And he's got a knife over that son. And why was he able to do that? The book of Hebrews tells us that he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. He said, God is going to be trustworthy. God is, I, I can trust God. God is going to keep his word. This is the son that God said he's going to, the promise is going to go through. This is the son that he promised me. This is the son that we waited for. This is the son that he gave. We named him what he wanted to be, what God wanted him to be named. God and no one's ever been raised from the dead. <laughs> when Abraham trusts God that way. And so if you see Zerubbabel's name in here, or any descendant who's related to Conaniah in Matthew's uh, gospel or here, and you know your Bible, you say, there's a problem here. And you say, how's God going to solve this? But he will solve it. He'll bring all of these things together. Somehow he will do it. I love, last night we were, um, the, many of the leadership of, of our churches were together uh, over at Joe and Stephanie Tyndale's house just for a dinner to, to fellowship with one another and had some great time. And somebody brought up the movie Etow. How many of you have seen the movie Etow? You, you should go and watch it on YouTube today. 30 minutes, 29 minutes exactly. 30 minutes. 
It's about the gospel going to a tribe in Papua New Guinea, and they start to, New Tribes Missions, they start to share the gospel. And as they share the gospel, they, they, they start chronologically. They say that the God that created all of this, you and me and white skin and black skin, and created our different color hair and created our different places and created the sun and the moon, that God at one time visited this earth, and he had a message for this earth. And we have offended that God. And so they begin to talk about the gospel in those ways, and then they begin from in, the, in the back of the Old Testament. They start working forward from Adam up to Abraham, and the whole village comes out to listen to the message, and they're learning about this God because this God has now sent the missionaries to come to their village to share. Now this message is now coming to them. And they get to the story of Abraham, and they know that Abraham is a righteous man, and they stop the story one day. They stop it right before Abraham is about to slay Isaac. Independently, as people go back to their their homes in in the village, three different men come and find the missionary, and they see the problem. But God promised through Isaac would be, the, the Savior would come. Through Isaac, the, the, the whole world would be blessed. How is this going to happen? And independently, one of the men comes to him and says, God must supply a substitute. Because up to that point, they've been working through the whole idea of a substitute, of a sin sacrifice. And independently, the spirit working in that man's life, he comes to the conclusion, led by the spirit of God, God must provide a solution. So when they get to that part of the story, um, the whole village is relieved, and the story continues. They come into the New Testament, and I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story, because I want you to watch the movie because it's so much better than me telling it. When you see what happens in the village, when they all understand the cross and the lamb that was slain for them, what happens in that village ought to happen in every church. God will make a way. He is always trustworthy. He is always worthy of your trust. There's no situation you're going to come come up against in life where he is not worthy of your trust. We would always like to know more, but here's what we know. All the names in this genealogy are important. The famous and the not so famous, the ones who held high position and the ones who perhaps never held any position at all. So how does God solve that problem? Well, you know, right? I've been hinting about it the whole time. Somehow, there, we find out in Romans that... And theologically, how, how does this work? Why is it that um, uh, Eve and Adam sin, but Adam is held responsible? Right? Why is it the book of Romans tells us that the sin nature that every one of us has is passed on generationally through the seed of the man? Why is that? 
Because God wants us to see his finger on every page of the scripture, setting us up for the virgin birth of Christ. There's no man involved. God causes this ancestor of the Davidic line to have a son with no man involved to fulfill his promise. There's only one man who has a genealogy through this time period in all of history, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one that we know of that has a genealogy through those verses, through verse 23 through 26, all those names in there. There's nobody else on the planet that has a, an ancestry that can be traced back to Adam through, through that time period except Jesus. Hundreds of prophecies made over a thousand-year period. Jesus and Jesus alone answers the quiz question, who has the credential to be the Messiah? He's the only one that could answer that. Uh, if that I'd love to see that question asked on Jeopardy, wouldn't you? Why is he called Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The one who is related to David through Mary's genealogy and the, and the virgin-born son, begotten by, not by Joseph, but by the Spirit of God in a supernatural way, different from every other birth since or before. So here are some conclusions. This genealogy does not establish the bloodline of the Messiah unless Mary is included. By the way, when you have the number 14, 14, and 14 in Matthew, the generations, we know that some generations are left out. But Matthew's genealogy is divided up into 14 names and 14 names and 14 names, probably for memory retention so that people could re remember the, the genealogy and, and to mark important periods from here to the de deportation, from here to the, to the Messiah, those kinds of things. But the only way that works out, there's 14, there's 14. He says there's 14, there's 14, and there's 14. But when you start counting, there's 14, there's 14, and there's 13. The only way the genealogy works out in the final genealogy is if you count someone else. And the someone else, obviously, is Mary. Mary is the one who needs to be counted. So both genealogies point to the virgin birth in, in very subtle and different ways. God highlights the names and the stories of people to give a path for the hungry to follow, like breadcrumbs to the Messiah. That's what he's doing. And so what should we take away for, for uh, this Christmas? Here's, here's one simple thing. That God cares about the details of life. He cares about ancient history. He cares about your history. He knows your heartache. He knows your pain. He knows the trials that you're going through and have gone through. He knows the ones you're going to go through. He continues to haunt these pages and, and the troubles that, that haunt your spirit. He knows all about. You can ask him about anything and he can empower you to overcome when you trust and believe in him. Years ago, um, when my son was about five years old, he prayed a very particular prayer. I don't remember... Uh, his mother or I telling him to pray it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't remember anything about that. He, he had done something wrong and it had been disciplined. 
uh, for it and concluded in his little heart that he needed to not do it again, and so he prayed, and we heard him. And his prayer was, um, I know you parents, you've never heard your children, uh, they don't, your children don't do these things, but my son did. And he said, Jesus, help me not hit Meredith. Now, your children don't hit one another, you know, but mine, mine did. And uh, help me not hit Meredith. So later on that day, I came home, and he comes running to me. Dad, it worked. I didn't hit Meredith all day. <laughs> See, because God is trustworthy, because God keeps his word, because God cares about us, because the, the trajectory of these genealogies is God saying that I have been looking through all time for, way, for a, the way to bless you maximally by bringing you into relationship with me. And you can trust my word because I, I recorded it here so that you could study it and learn of it and see the detail that I paid to making sure that I made good on my promise to Abraham. That in you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in your seed, and that's why the Jews were so fascinated by genealogy, 70 of them in the Old Testament. So a little boy at five with a childlike faith can pray, God is big, bigger than me. And my parents have told me that he can be trusted. And so he prays a simple prayer in faith believing that God can help him. And all of us adults could learn from him. Because as we grow older, we don't grow more trustworthy oftentimes. More trusting, I should say. Instead, we put all kinds of, of fences around what we will trust God for. But what this genealogy tells me is that God cares about the little things. He cares about the details. And he cares about people who trust him to work out the details. Second, God has been at work for a long time to prove his love for us, to prove it. And he did it most principally in the life of Christ, where, where Paul tells us that God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Christmas is all about. One year at a Christmas service, what we did is we, we put a, a, a stage in the center of the room. We put seats up here and we, put, uh, and, and we preached from the center uh, for that message. And the reason was we wanted to su suspend a cross from the middle of the room above a creche, a manger. And the whole message was about Jesus was born to die. That's why he came. He came as a small, tiny, defenseless infant. He is God in the flesh. And he came to lay his life down for you. And God is looking through all of time, down through the corridors of history, he's looking into our hearts. He's looking at the people who would believe. Who would see him, that he's proved his love. Christmas is about, third, about a Messiah who came to save his people 
from their sins, therefore. A man came to me one year and he said, uh, I want to find out at Christmas time, I want to find out what Christmas is all about. I said, well, come on in. We're glad you're here. This is what Christmas is all about. God is providing his Messiah just as he promised. And what that means is that if you buy uh, what the culture wants to sell you uh, with what my friend Gary wrote about it's all about tinsel and it's all about Hallmark movies and uh, it's about fake snow and, you know, Christmas trees and presents. You buy that, you have bought an empty box like these. The kids are dying to find out what's in there. Tell them. Son, daughter, that's an empty box. It's a decoration for the season. Christmas is about Jesus. And if we forget that, we forget what the faith is about, and we begin to wound our souls... because the real story is far more extraordinary than that. It's about a young, engaged couple who are dirt poor, but a part of the grand plan of God. It's about a, a dirt poor couple with an unplanned pregnancy that causes the father to second guess whether or not he's engaged to the right person. It's about living with rumors all your life in your hometown because some don't believe the story you tell. It's about a government that is bent on taking away things from you and a government that is bent on killing your child and knowing that that child is destined for great things for that's what Mary said Mary found she pondered these things when the angels came and announced what, what when the shepherds came and announced what the angels had said to her to them and she pondered those things in her heart um, the, the, the Greek is uh, ekbalo, uh, ek the, 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 to throw, to sumbalo, the, to throw together. She threw these things together in her mind over and over and over, pondering them, considering them all her life about what the shepherds had said about the child that they were going to find laying in a manger what the angel had said to her, what the angel had said to Joseph. She pondered those things. And so when the rumors came and the doubts came, she pondered those things. They pondered those things. And they raised Jesus, which is an incredible thought. I mean, we think we have it hard raising our own children. Imagine raising Jesus. Remember that Christmas 
is about the redemption of the world. Which is what we talked about on the eve of Christmas Eve. The worship team is going to come. They're going to lead us, and I hope lead us into the throne room of grace as we think about and ponder these things, as we consider these things. Genealogy is dry, dull, boring. But there's, when you start studying these names and these figures, and you start studying their lives, and you start studying why all these nameless people to show to, so that the spotlight is revealed on Zerubbabel and Shiltiel, the first ones that we have any record of in the Bible outside of the New Testament. Why? God is highlighting this person. He wants to see this is a signet ring. This is an example of the Messiah. This is the one who represents the one who is to come. And somehow God is going to bring a son through this line that is a son in some different kind of way that is going to be still in the line of David legally and yet not the son of any particular man. And he does that through the virgin birth. And that is not, that's why the virgin birth is not one of those doctrines we can just exit, we can just throw away. It's essential. I asked a, a, an intern one time uh, about something that we, we had a dispute about in terms of what he believed and what I believed. And I said, well, let me find out what the level of belief is for this. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, let me ask you. If somebody's holding a knife at your throat on this doctrine that we have dispute about, um, uh, what would you say? And he said, oh, okay. Um, I would say um, maybe I don't believe that doctrine because it, it wasn't an important base doctrine of the faith. I said, same question, uh, what if somebody's holding a knife to your throat about the virgin birth? And he said, oh, instantly, he said, he said, slit my throat. I said, okay, we're on the same page. Let's rejoice together. It's essential, people. It's essential. It's one of the ways that God says and marks down in his book, this is how I delivered the Messiah to you. This is how I demonstrated my love for you. And that while you were yet sinners, I was preparing to do this for you. That's why, it, that, that's why it's there. Amen? Why don't you stand and we'll worship.